Welcome to It's No Secret, a podcast for Kiwis who want their money questions answered. Ready, steady, go. This podcast will answer the money questions you may or may not have on your mind. We'll talk to real Kiwis and share truths about our own financial lives. Both the successes and the failures. Because the truth is, there is no secret to achieving financial freedom. Hello and welcome to It's No Secret. Today on the podcast, we're back for part two of our insurance series, where Kat and I answer the question of, is insurance a waste of time and money? If you haven't listened to part one, stop right now and go back and listen to our previous episode. It's definitely one not to miss, and this podcast will make a lot more sense if you do. In this specific podcast, we chat about the details of personal insurances, i.e. income protection and trauma cover. Plus, Kat and I share our experiences with these types of insurances. We hope you enjoy this chat as much as we did. One thing we didn't touch on but is kind of cool with trauma cover is there's also this thing called trauma reinstatement, which means that if you have a trauma event, i.e. a heart attack, and you have trauma reinstatement, you can get paid out your full trauma amount. So let's say, you know, $100,000 because you had a heart attack, um, your trauma is then reinstated and you won't be paid out again for any other heart-related conditions or trauma events, but you would if you got cancer. So it can be a way that's like you can kind of double dip from the benefits (laughs) (laughs) without needing to like get new policies after the fact. It's kind of a nice way of like you're insuring yourself against lots of future scenarios without having to go through all the medical underwriting every, you know, every time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was going to say how much do you pay for your trauma cover? Great question. Um, Now, because it is the more expensive one, I'm going to say that now to put in context, Luke's is more expensive than mine, but this keeping in mind people, there's a six year age gap between us and he's a man. He is higher risk because he's a boy <laughs> so, um, and he's older. So those things do play into it. I pay lower cover across ba- or lower premiums across basically all of my cover, but I believe with trauma because we had the same amount of cover, mine was about $120 a month. And I think Luke's was closer to about 160. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's not cheap. Um, but I don't know. I, I think lots of people view peace of mind differently, right? And mm. for what we have decided to prioritize in terms of expenses to give us like an unknown, well, a huge amount of peace of mind um, mm. is a worthwhile trade-off for us. And let's be honest, the other thing as well is with trauma cover, like there does come a time where potentially depending on your financial situation, you could self-insure for some of those things. You know, like if you had a giant mm. emergency account, if you had savings and, you know, other assets and the ability that should one of you not be able to work because you had a major medical event, it wouldn't be a problem. So there are edge cases everywhere and there may be a time where we don't have trauma cover anymore, but until that time, the conservative in me was like, give me all the cover. (laughs) (laughs) Protect me, please. (laughs) Pretty much, pretty much. So so life insurance I think is good because (laughs) um, the easy part about life insurance is if you are thinking about getting life insurance, I would encourage anyone to think about these three things. I mean, do we even need to define what life insurance is? I'm assuming everyone knows that you get paid out your life insurance sadly when you pass away. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Important thing to note is insurance policies have their own beneficiaries. So when you take up an insurance policy, particularly obviously a life insurance policy, you have to note who the beneficiary is. So most people commonly note um, if they have, say, multiple children or not like one main dependent, they might um, nominate the estate so that then the proceeds of that life insurance are dealt with through their will, which gives you a lot more flexibility to update that in the future, or you could nominate a particular individual. So if I didn't want my life cover to go through my estate, I just wanted it to go straight to Luke, I would just put Luke's name down and he would just receive that money in the bank once they've gone through the process of confirming that I've actually died. All that grim stuff, very sad. Um, and yeah. he gets the money. So I shouldn't laugh. It is sad. I'm sure, I'm sure it's very sad when you go through the process. But for the purposes of everyone not being depressed whilst listening to this episode, we'll try and keep it lighthearted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I think the common things that you would think about, right, when you think of life insurance is do I have a mortgage? I.e., if I were to pass away, would my dependents or those that I own the house with struggle to pay? The mortgage just on their income. Therefore, should I have a lump sum to help pay that back? The other thing people often do is if you have a rundown of say what your current net worth is or your asset position, you might look at that and say, if I was to pass away, what kind of position are my beneficiaries left with right now? You know, in your instance, Christine, like you obviously don't have debt yet. It might be a fairly simple calculation because you would be like, okay, well, I don't really have any debts to repay. Um, my beneficiaries would just get my KiwiSaver, whatever's in your investment account and my savings. And that would actually more than cover any funeral costs. And then they'd actually be left with money as opposed to in a negative position. So, yeah you probably feel relatively comfortable about not having life insurance. However, if you and Ollie bought a house, that might change because it's then more of a decision of, you know, what we would often say to people is if you have partners, dependents, family, whoever it might be, other people in your life, if you were no longer to be here, how would you like them to be able to live? What position would you like to leave them in? And it's not so much about, obviously leaving them in a baller position like they've just won the lottery because then you're at risk of having cyanide put in your dinner. Um, But it is about thinking through, okay, well, most people would answer that question and be like, I don't want my family to be under pressure and I don't want them to be any worse off. So then there are things like thinking through to do that what do we need to ensure? Do we wipe out the whole home mortgage? Even if your spouse is working, do we just wipe it out so they don't have that pressure? If you have kids, you then need to think about are the is the person that's being insured the sole income earner or are they the breadwinner? And if they are, do we need to include more of a lump sum in that life insurance so that the kids and the spouse have money to live off? And that's where working with an advisor can um, really help that basically that discussion. So I guess as an example, Luke and my total debts are like $900,000, I think roughly, if you calculate like our mortgage and some other debts we had to buy into a business and other stuff, um, total loan. But we are each insured for, I believe, just over $1.5 million. So, oh, each, you know, not together? Each. Oh, yeah. So yeah. if either of us died, yeah. 
And and we at one point in time, when if OG listeners of the show who have listened to our debt episode will know that at one point in time I had a lot more debt than that when we owned more property. Okay. Um, at that point in time, our life cover was two point four million dollars each. So it was a bit, but we have obviously since changed our financial position since then. So we've managed to reduce it. Equally, if we were to upsize our home, our mortgage would probably be much higher than 900000 and we would look at increasing it. So it is flexible. Um, you know, with life, you obviously don't have to go through the medical underwriting because there's nothing to underwrite. They're just deciding. It was just based on when you pass away. So you are a little bit more, um, have a little bit more freedom, I guess, to change providers, to change amounts, tweak it so that it's relevant to your circumstances. You know, if you were in a relationship and had a house and you set up life insurance based on that and then you separated, that would obviously trigger a decision point to review what you have. Mm. That's a really good point um, about your the size of your mortgage. So if you're taking on more debt yeah. and like making sure that you adjust it. Yes, yes. Yeah, more and I think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but thinking about that practically, like most people that are running a household or have bought a house as a couple, like chances are you've done that on the basis that you both have an income. And then if you think about like, okay, well, what position would you want your partner to be in if you were no longer here? If you were no longer here and they would struggle to pay that mortgage, they're either forced to sell the house or they're forced to go and get a higher paid in job. Both of those very stressful things to go through in what is already an incredibly emotionally stressful time. So I think that's where, you know, a lot of people just be like, let's just ensure what makes sense. Let's make sure that the people I'm leaving behind are comfortable, that debts have been cleared um, and that everyone feels really comfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah, nice, so, nice. You know. Love it. I know. And there, and there, I mean, <clears throat> the other thing on that is we have also had, like Luke and I have had conversations around um, if we would want to help out family members that we think might need support in their retirement. And so talked about things like, you know, if he were to pass away and, oh, Soda, get out of here. Did you hear that? <laughs> <Front door. laughs> yeah. Like if Luke were to pass away and I received the $1.5 million, I would like to think that I'd keep working and I would obviously pay off our debts and then I'd probably be able to support myself on my salary on the basis that I'm not paying a mortgage, right? And Mm -hmm. so then there is some kind of surplus and there is a part of me that's like some of that surplus is trying to make up for the heartache that you've just lost your life partner and also give you some time to have time off work. That's the other thing is oftentimes people wanted to, you know, say I'd really like it so that my spouse didn't have to immediately go back to work or, run, you know, kids, like yeah. have time to support them. Um, there's lots of things like that that factor into it because, you know, as well, I guess if the scenario changed, right, and Luke and I had kids and I'm the sole breadwinner and something happened to me, he then like who's going to look after the kids and then go back to work so it's just around you know maybe leaving those people a sum of money that can then support them ongoing in future or at least for the you know immediate short to medium term so that they're not forced into any kind of decisions like having to sell houses and stuff like that yeah yeah for sure yeah i know Mm. so tricky it is really tricky tricky. (laughs) this is like an epic insurance chat we haven't even gone to dpd I don't think I've ever talked in such a hard insurance. It's so good. Uh, okay. <clears throat> I will wrap up with TPD very quickly and I think it's I'm easy right. because <laughs> total and permanent disability 
is typically the last insurance that we would encounter under like the personal protection umbrella. And it is relatively self-explanatory in the sense that its name literally describes what has happened to you. So you are totally and permanently disabled. And it's very similar in its definitions to how income protection works. So you have the same definitions around are you totally and permanently disabled from your own job or from any job? So similar things there, right? And same things to consider around what definition you would like to choose. Um, In terms of being a recipient of that, you actually, again, have to have two medical practitioners sign off on the fact that, yes, you are TPD'd under that definition. That's that. You get the payout, unlike income protection, but similar to life, it's a lump sum. So very different calculation and very different purpose. Now, people might think, why would I get a lump sum if I am totally and permanently disabled from being able to do my job? What the premise behind it is, is that is enough money. And this is where advisors have their calculations feeding into it. The sum that you get paid out is enough money that should it be invested at a certain level of risk that you've previously agreed upon with your advisor, that investment will then provide you enough income to live until you sadly pass away. And you can make some assumptions around what your life expectancy would be under a TPD event. Obviously, there are varying TPD events. Like we go back to the example of the mental health client I had in Melbourne. They actually got a TPD payout under mental health. Their life expectancy is probably just as long. Um, But in comparison to say, you know, if you had a TPD payout on the basis that you were a quadriplegic, you may have other health issues that mean your life expectancy is no longer to kind of, you know, 80 or 75. So there are a lot of different things that factor into yeah, what that total lump sum is. But the idea behind it is you receive the lump sum, you invest the lump sum, and you then live off the income that the lump sum generates. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. So really, I, then it's like, I guess at a base level, in terms of thinking about what that amount of lump sum is, it's just, well, how much income do you want to generate, right? Like how much of a lump sum do you need to to cover your costs ongoing and what are those costs? And this again is where it totally depends on your circumstance because, Christine, if you were an individual, you know, even if you're like with Ollie, the kind of costs you guys would consider as like, well, um, you know, care costs, ongoing medical costs, upfront medical costs, um, you know, would you have like a family member be a carer? And would we then need to top up their income if they, say, went to like part-time work or stopped working entirely Um, or are you paying for a carer? Amendments to your house. So in the event that um, you needed to adjust your property to basically be disability friendly, that costs money, Um, or if you needed to move, all of those sorts of things. So we used to really like tweak this, uh, tweak the calculation based on people's situations, right? Because if you're dealing with a couple that own their own home, slightly different costs involved as opposed to say a younger person that's potentially flatting that would maybe look at as part of this lump sum buying a, you know, one bed unit that they would potentially live in if this was their, you know, more permanent situation. So completely different um, requirements, needs, nothing that is a set in stone amount or a recommended amount. It's really just, you know, what do you foresee as being needed? And this, I think, probably also comes to the crux of why people don't 
entertain these insurances, right? Because you actually have to force yourself to go through what would happen in this scenario. What does this look like as painful as that is? And then think about what's the monetary impact of that. I was just just thinking that, like, how do you even go about figuring out what those costs would be? Yeah. So really good one. Like, so as an advisor, I, I, to be honest, if I was just a normal person, I would really struggle to do this. Even as an advisor, it was a relatively complex situation, like, um, calculation. We would basically say, so, okay, let's say you told us your exact current budget. We would take your current living expenses and maybe use a percentage of them because it's fair to assume that if you have a TPD situation, you're probably not going on the holidays that you used to. You're probably not eating out as much as you did. Like things are different. So your base level of living expenses might be reduced, but it'll be as a reference point off what you had told us you spend. Um, There's then known amounts that we would budget in for, say, carers. So like a part-time carer in Melbourne, we would kind of factor in $50,000 a year, um, potentially a little bit more if it was full-time, you know, or if you needed around-the-clock care. Um, Things like if we were in the instance of, you know, the primary breadwinner, if we dealt with a lot of couples and there was a single-income household, if the primary breadwinner was TPD'd and your children are at school, and your spouse is now a carer plus a nanny, do you have to factor in nanny costs or do you have to factor in carer costs? What does that look like? You can't expect one person to look after three people. Um, You know, being (laughs) recognising those sorts of things. Then as well with that, we would offset some of those costs with future income. So let's say in the instance that actually it wasn't a, it was a true income household. And we, in the discussions, agreed that in this type of scenario, the spouse would continue to work, but we would get a carer in. Now, obviously, the ongoing income of the spouse will offset those expenses. So then you end up with whatever the net deficit is, and you get the lump sum to cover that deficit. So when you're basically looking at like, you know, what are all the expenses? What's all the potential income that might come in? over that period of time. Um, And this is also where it would factor in assets. So if like someone, say, a couple came to us and they owned a home and a rental property, we might say, okay, in this calculation, we're going to include a lump sum to repay your debts so that then that rental property is paying you guys income on an ongoing basis because you'll need that income because someone else is now not working, all of those sorts of things. It can be a real nightmare. (laughs) It's a lot easier to do. Yeah, it's a lot easier to do if, if, you know, if you were approaching it as an individual now, right, and it's a lot more of a base level scenario and kind of just carer's income, um, you know, ongoing expenses, what Ollie would do, those kind of considerations, whereas when you start to involve children, non-working spouses, all that type of stuff, it can be quite challenging. But then as well, there's also just the reality that, you know, when we went through this, for example, Luke's TPD value, like amount that he's insured for is a lot higher than mine because he was on a higher income. And for us as a family to have his loss of income puts a lot more financial pressure on us than say if it was me to be TPD. Mm. Great one I just remembered is on that. So if anyone listening out there is a non-working individual, you might be thinking, well, I don't even get insurance, right? Like, I don't work. I'm a home carer. I'm on home duties. I don't need to work. Whatever the choice might be, you don't need income protection or TPD. 
I would say that's not necessarily the case, particularly in the instance of those people that are looking after children, are raising the family at home. You can get TPD. There is a definition under TPD called home duties that applies specifically for this instance. And it is for the case that we just talked about. If you, as the primary carer for, say, children, were no longer able to do that because you're TPD'd, not only do you need care, but they also need care. So factoring in those types of expenses because the chances are is the primary breadwinner or the person working in that situation would not then be able to quit their job to be able to care for anyone in that circumstance. Mm. Complicated. Yeah, it is. I was just also thinking about how, well, firstly, the Danish healthcare system and how created it is. Or just generally, I think it really looks after you. But um, also thinking about like moving to different countries and whether you could get insurance Mm. with your role or or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, that is an important thing because there are there are a lot of employers that either provide subsidized like group cover um, or potentially provide cover in general, and it's definitely worthwhile entertaining what those policies are. One thing generally that I will say about group cover is the general kind of rule is the group cover policies are not as tight or as like clean cut as it would be if it was you just directly purchasing a policy, and that's usually because they try and cover the masses as like because it's yeah. a group rather than cover you specifically. So what we would often see is people would come in and they had like great cover from um, their employer, say for life, but it had slightly different restrictions or for TPD. So then we might advise them to have a top-up policy separate. So perhaps, you know, we felt that um, the group cover, which had a cap because often group covers as well in the life of say life insurance so I know Luke had this in New Zealand he had life insurance that covered him to a multiple of his salary that's great but that was not enough life insurance for us so we have factored into his life amount that portion and then just insured him for the top up separately that we pay for yeah right yeah Mm. so you can use the two of them to both advantage also great way to like keep your overall insurance costs lower um the trade-off being that if you leave that employer you may have to do some things to keep those benefits there are usually you can keep them but they the cost might just change of them because you don't get like the group discount anymore I wasn't aware that you could do top-up insurance as well I thought you could have multiple insurance policies for the same thing yeah so, so you're like oh my god <laughs> this is relevant to note in the sense that like just to be clear you can't go and get income protection from like three different companies and expect all of them to pay out to 75 percent and then like make bank that's not how that works <laughs> they offset income from other sources um but it does mean that you know, a great example of this is probably myself in that um, I have an existing income protection insurance with an existing provider that at the time we insured to my salary that I earned. Now, over the course of that policy, me owning that policy, the insured amount will increase by CPI. That's great. But I've since moved countries, changed jobs, slightly switched, well, same industry, but entirely different type of role. And my salary changes have been quite different. And probably in future, I will be on a much higher income than what 
that insured value is based on the CPI. So depending on our situation, there may come a time where I decide to get a separate income protection policy to top up. So let's just say for argument's sake, I had one that covered $100,000 and then I wanted a top up, I could get another to cover $50,000. But as long as they both combined equated to my total income, they would both pay out if I met the conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good way as well, like if you you know, get a policy early on and then have some medical events that mean you would have um, exclusions, for example, like pre-existing condition exclusions, you want to do everything you can to keep that original policy that is like great. So, you know, if Luke had an issue with his ear now, because he had his insurance in place before his ear, if he ever had an ear problem that meant he couldn't actually ever go back to work, he would still get paid out on that because it was on the original one. Whereas if he went for a top up, it would be different. So yeah, it can end up being an admin nightmare though. I mean, look, no insurance is fun. Like I'd say, I'd say (laughs) cons for insurance because I feel like I'm all about the pros, but cons for insurance is it can be an admin nightmare, um, you know, in terms of financial admin. Also, it's probably one of those things that you do want to regularly review because as you've clearly just heard, there's so many factors, right? And a lot of it is driven by what's happening in your life and your financial situation. And so what you set up at the age of 30 or 26, like I did, is not going to be relevant for what, you know, is going on for me when I'm 35. Um, Yeah. yeah, That actually reminds me, someone crashed into me the other day and I have done nothing about it. Oh, no. (laughs) Because I'm actively avoiding reaching out to insurance insurance company i know it's painful (laughs) it is painful it is painful not to i mean i obviously plug advisors all the time but the very good thing guys about if you work with an insurance advisor and you get a policy facilitated through them yes they will receive commission from the insurance company but the benefit is is that in the event of claim you have them to help you with that so that is super important because if you think about all the stuff that we just talked about right if you've just had a trauma event, you don't want to be filling out paperwork on the phone to freaking Southern Cross. Hells yeah. no. Like yeah. you want to be at home dealing with this stressful time with your family. So, um, you know, whilst insurance insurance advisors sometimes get a bit of a like hard flack, like they will be worth their weight in gold in the event that you actually need to use them mm. for a claim. With, with insurance advisors, do you, you know how I guess – there's like financial planning and you can pay a fee for service Mm -hmm. can you do the same thing with insurance advisors or is it typically only kind of commissions and things like that it's mostly commissions um you will find some advisors that are happy to not put commissions on the policy and will pay a service like a fee for service charge interestingly uh in the last advice firm i worked for in melbourne we actually switched to that so we wanted to not accept any commissions on any policies so we moved to fee-for-service. The trouble was is insurance is actually part of the process of all of financial planning that can be a lot of work, right, because there's a lot of calculations that go on behind the scenes. And then the other thing is is that people often don't realise is, so, you know, Christine, if you came to me as an advisor and basically we talked through what you needed, what types of policies, I would then get you to fill out essentially a health questionnaire. So I got a sense of like, do you have any pre-existing conditions? What things might be flagged? You know, for yeah. some people as well, probably need to mention this, like you have to disclose a lot to that person 
about your health. So you mm-hmm. need to be comfortable with that. Obviously, that information is highly confidential, um, but there is that discussion. The reason that they need to know that is because different companies in the same way as like lenders, right, like to take on different risks. So whilst while one company might be like very favourable on mental health conditions at the moment, another might not be because their books could be entirely full of people of that level of risk. And those things change. So it is in the same way as like applying for a mortgage, a little bit about putting you forward to the insurer that's most likely to be favourable to your combination of health issues if you do have a health problem. Um, or, or, you know, we would often find we'd need to um, submit what's called a pre-assessment to three different like insurers and then find which was the best if we felt that someone was likely to have an exclusion or pre-existing conditions flagged and then we would pick like okay well which insurer has provided the most um the most favorable terms you know which has said oh as long as you don't have you know side effects after three years we can wipe this versus the one that said five years we'll probably opt for the one with three years if on par everything else is the same yeah, that's interesting as well because I've never really thought about thinking of that as an advantage of the advisor because, you know, advisor. I think yeah. a lot of people probably just think, oh, well, which one can I get for the cheapest because it's expensive, oh, right? Absolutely. And and on, on the flip side, the other part of that is like not all claims processes are created equal. And this stands true for any insurance, right? But again, I would say this is most important for this kind of insurance because, um, you know, even in the event of, say, life insurance payout, if that's being paid out from your spouse and you have children and, like, there are people relying on that money, you want that process to be as fast and easy and pain-free as possible and not an all insurers make it that way. And, again, you also want someone in your corner that can, like, be a bulldog on the phone chasing them for that, which is more often than not what happens with an advisor if they're going through a claim. Um, you know, there's tons of stories in Australia about claims being rejected and advisors going back to like fight on them and them, them being approved. Now, if you're doing that process on your own, you're not going to know that because you're not going to have the depth of experience to see what other types of claims have been approved. You have no reference points and it's really hard. So, hmm. Yeah. Very important. This is all just making me think that I need to go see some sort of advisor for everything. (laughs) (laughs) Just see an advisor. But I mean, I think insurance is a nice starting point, right? And like, go see an advisor, see what they say. Like, you don't have to take up everything. You can kind of get a sense, like, what is my risk? What do I value covering? You know, what am I able to pay as a premium? What kind of trade-offs am I happy with? And what does that look like? And yeah, and see from there. So, Kat. We have just gone through lots of insurances and said lots of stuff, but I think the question on a lot of people's mind is where do I start and how much do I, how do I decide how much cover I need? Great question. So the starting point is you actually need to have an assets and liabilities sheet, like a balance sheet prepared, and you need to have a budget because all of the things that we've just talked about are really dependent on what your net asset position is, but then also what your expenditure is um, and projecting that ongoing. So I think that's the starting point, basically doing a stock take of your current position, then I would highly suggest seeing an advisor because they're going to do the legwork for the calculations for you. If you are a numbers nerd and you want to have a crack at it, start at the easy things, obviously income protection, um, trauma, because it's a lump sum. If you think about those four trauma 
major trauma events, you can do a little bit of research to see what kind of medical costs are associated with something like a heart attack or cancer. And then also think about if that medical event was to happen to me, how much time would I actually have to take off work? Um, so thinking about that and just getting a gut feel, right? Keeping in mind that for trauma, we kind of tend to stick to round numbers, you know, 50, 80, 100, 120, 150, so on and so forth. So ballpark we do not want you don't want specifics in insurance like I tell you no one's applying for like $86,952 so they would be the starting points and then I think you could probably do the same thing for life insurance right particularly if you've got a relatively straightforward um, balance sheet and situation you have to have the awkward conversation with those in your family. So now is the time if you are thinking about this to engage in the discussion, no matter how painful it is with your partner or significant other to say, hey, in the event that I did pass away, what would you want to do? What does that look like for you? I know this sounds really morbid, but Luke and I, like I kind of enjoy these conversations and I know that (laughs) – (laughs) no that sounds super morbid but like it's one of those things it's been fascinating like we have that conversation maybe like once a year just to sense check that we're still on the same page but it has been really interesting because one thing it has highlighted is a we have very different um views or wishes of what we would like to have happen to not only each other but our surrounding family in the event that we were to pass away right and I would never know that if we didn't talk about it um So, you know, and particularly where assets and things are involved as well. And of course, this flows on to estate planning and those sorts of discussions. But, you know, the nice starting point is like, if I was no longer here, what would you do? Like, would you still be working? Would you want time off with the kids? Like, would you go back to work if you're not currently working? What does that look like? And having that kind of discussion. Um, And then from there... I, to be honest, wouldn't even say go and do the provider research because you're just going to send yourself down a rabbit hole, right? And as we just talked on before, it's more relevant knowing which providers are going to be more favorable to your health position. um, And that's something that you're not going to know. So, you know, even if you, that's the point at which you go to an advisor and you say, hey, these are the amounts that I think I need to insure for, you can go do that, but you still need to go and work with an insurance advisor or insurance broker. Yeah. Cool. And then the last step, which I did totally forget about, but is 100% relevant, is estate planning. Um, this is basically like 100% necessary if you have life insurance. And I'm being very hypocritical here because I know that Luke and I at the moment do not have valid wills and we have been thinking about this for like, well, since we got married, which is what invalidated them. Um, so did you know that, team? Fun fact, marriages invalidate wills. Divorces do not. Estate planning 101, don't fuck it up. Yeah, I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing that catches people out. So we both had wills done when we first got financial planning done prior to us being married. The minute we were married, invalidated. If we were to get divorced, not invalidated. So very important to keep up to date with that. But as we talked about life insurance, that is a significant or potentially significant payout coming into your estate. So it is very important that you have estate instructions, i.e. through a will, um, so that that process is not slowed down unnecessarily or inadvertently paid to the wrong person. I'm, I just want to ask well questions now, but I'm not going Sorry. to do that. <laughs> I'll leave us one more. <laughs> huh? I'll leave us one. Oh, you want to ask will well, questions? Well, oh, well, okay. I... <laughs> 
go for it. All I could think was, do I only need a will when I'm married? <laughs> well, think about it this way. Okay, so what I would say to you is go back to step one of that answer that I just said and write down your assets mm. position, right? And then figure out at the bottom, do I have a net asset position or a net deficit position? If you have a net deficit position, the short, long and the short of it is your beneficiaries are just going to be left with your debt, so just run away. Don't do a will. No, that's very flippant of me to say. But if you have a net asset position, the question is, is like how, who do you want that money to go to? Mm, yeah. Even if it's a small amount, you know. Um, mm. And the other thing to think about I guess also relevant for our age group is whilst you might not think that you have enough assets now, if you you were to be the recipient of an inheritance, you would then need to get a will. And what if something happened to you at that point um, or mm-hmm. at a similar time? Because oftentimes, and now we're getting into the really grim family situation, but oftentimes like let's say you're a recipient in your mum's will and you and her are traveling together and you both pass away at the same time, there Mm -hmm. is a flow on of like however it's deemed and let's say like her assets pass to you but then you had no will, they would stop there and have to go through the courts. So, I mean, yeah, I just feel like everyone everyone can have a will if if you've got some asset base to be shared. I completely agree. Well, now I agree. (laughs) Oh, I know. I have a lot of life admin to do, I think. <laughs> I know. This is this is where I think as an advisor, this is why I got to the point of needing an advisor because I was like insurance alone is enough to just send you a bit batty, let alone then you're like, okay, I need to also have done my budget and look at my asset sheet and then like get the insurance and then fill out all the forms, chase up the applications, and now I need a will. <laughs> What more is there? I know. And then you're like, how's my retirement fund going? It's never ending, guys. It's never yeah. ending. <laughs> I mean, don't let that overwhelm you. But. No, don't let it overwhelm you. I better say, yeah. I mean, hey, big ups for sharing the burden with not only someone else in your family, i.e. your spouse or also yeah. you know, an advisor to take some of that load off too. Guys, if you've got any insurance questions, please reach out. We actually know a ton of really great insurance advisors through Colonel. So, you know, if you're looking for a suggestion of people to like touch base with, please do get in touch. Also, I think totally like relevant to think about that oftentimes banks or mortgage advisors will try and wrap up a life insurance policy when they're selling you a mortgage. So just be a little aware of that and think about like, is that actually what I want? Or is this the trigger point for me to now take this a bit more seriously and engage properly with an insurance advisor to look through the whole thing? Um, So yeah. Love it. Crushed it. Love it. Cool. Ask us about insurance on the gram. I dare you. Yeah. <laughs> Kat is clearly passionate about insurance. So I'm keen as to chat about it. <laughs> Please send her some questions. Uh, oh, dear. Thanks, team. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We hoped you enjoyed our insurance chat as much as we did. If you have questions about the podcast, feel free to get in touch with us on Instagram at It's No Secret NZ. We'll also share all the resources mentioned today on our website, www.itsnosecret.co.nz forward slash 31. Otherwise, we'll see you next Tuesday.